Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. We can't forget that Myanmar was for a very, very long time a very closed-off country. Staff of donor agencies and INGOs were genuinely trying to help populations on the ground in a context where they lacked information, they lacked access, and that has definitely shifted over time. If Australia, for example, was to give aid to Myanmar, do we just say, here's the money and you do whatever you want and we're not going to say anything? Or do we have extremely heavy restrictions on it, in which case they may say, we'll see you later, we don't want your aid anymore. So there's this delicate balance that aid agencies play. In this episode, hard lessons for international aid agencies in Myanmar. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Despite being rich in mineral and other natural resources, Myanmar is a poor country where the per capita GDP is a mere 1300 US dollars. It depends heavily on foreign aid, and yet international aid agencies are forced to operate in a complex, unstable and sometimes hostile political and social environment. Although Myanmar has recently emerged from military rule and has a democratically elected government, the military elite keep politicians on a tight leash. The country has long been plagued by armed conflict among its ethnic groups. And more recently, the Myanmar military has committed what the UN describes as ethnic cleansing on the minority Rohingya population. So, in this tough environment, how do international aid agencies function on the ground in Myanmar? Can the Myanmar government be counted on to distribute aid? Or should aid agencies look to NGOs who are better connected to the various ethnic minorities? How has that changed as Myanmar has developed? And what's the impact of China's particular aid model? Joining me to discuss the aims and realities of foreign aid to Myanmar are anthropologist Dr Anne Decobert and civil society expert Dr Tamus Wells. Both Anne and Tamus are from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Ear to Asia, Anne and Tamus. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start in the now, if you like. How important is international aid to Myanmar in 2019, Anne? Well, Myanmar is now one of the world's largest recipients of foreign aid. As of 2015, it was the world's seventh largest recipient of foreign aid. And in the region, it's really significant. It comes third behind just Cambodia and Laos. So it's very significant now. And as we'll explore, that's quite a significant change, isn't it? Very, (laughs) very different to what was happening in previous decades. Yes, absolutely. So, Tamus, if we look at, uh, again, what's happening in 2019, where Mm. does that most of that aid focus on and Mm. where is most of that aid coming from? Interestingly, it's Japan, which is the largest donor and the the World Bank and Asian Development Bank make up a massive proportion of the aid that's been given over recent years. I mean, as you'd expect, health and education are by far the biggest sectors that are focused on. But now it's kind of in any sector you can imagine, whether that's electricity or, you know, immunisation and everything in between. Australia is actually quite low in it. It's the 17th largest donor to Myanmar now. 
Yeah, so it's dominated by Japan, the World Bank, Asian Development Bank. So hit us with those statistics. Yeah, yeah. We just got them ready for you this morning. Uh, Well, I think, you know, what's particularly interesting is to contextualise aid as well. You know, currently aid to Myanmar, it's a little bit difficult to assess actual levels, but it sits somewhere between $1.5 and $2 billion per year. But when you compare to FDI, foreign direct investment, aid is actually quite low. FDI sits at around $5.8 billion. To sort of contextualise this, Myanmar's GDP is currently at $71.2 billion. Although Myanmar is one of the world's largest recipients of aid, we shouldn't overestimate aid within the overall budget yeah, of yeah, Myanmar compared and other, compared to other flows that yeah. are coming that's into the country. That's part of the development story, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All around the world, mm. we're seeing the same. And yet, Myanmar has massive natural resources, mm-hmm. but it does have a very low per capita GDP. Again, that's a development story. But mm. is, is there any element of surprise that it is so reliant on aid at this point? In the cycle, I think that's a trend that we'd see in other countries too. If you think of East Timor or Nigeria, you know, who have huge oil reserves, and the ability to translate natural resources into development is highly yeah, much harder than it looks. That's right, and, and, <laughs> and relies heavily on governance, obviously. So, how do you harness that revenue in order to improve the lives of people? That's just, I think, around the world has been shown to be incredibly difficult. And Myanmar, emerging from an authoritarian military government, doesn't have a lot of that governance structure in place. So hopefully in the future that their oil reserves or other you know, natural resources can be used. But at the moment, I think it's just extremely challenging. You made reference there to, of course, Myanmar's past. And I guess in, in many ways, and would you agree that the aid story in Myanmar is really... More than many other countries, it's really the story of the country itself. You can't see aid separate to the political context and you can't see it separate to the various interpretations of that context. Oh, yes. You can't detach the way in which aid has been provided from the way in which international donors have tried to, at various times, promote political change in the country through various tools, but also... The way in which international donors and the international community has tried to interpret the situation within what is a very, very complex country with many internal divisions, both political, religious and so on. So it's a very complex story. And in a sense, looking at the history of aid in Myanmar, you can actually read the history of political changes within the country and the history of changes in perceptions Mm. of the situation on the ground. So if we then go to the evolution of aid, when did it really first start having an impact in Myanmar? Do we see anything before the elections in 1990, for example, and before that, was Myanmar the recipient of aid? Yes, it was a recipient of aid. The World Bank was there. And then obviously everything changed after 1988 and the protests and then Aung San Suu Kyi being put in under house arrest and, yeah, all of that political turmoil at the end of the 80s. And what happened when the World Bank pulled out? It wasn't just the World Bank. There's a whole string of things that happened after all the protests of 1988 and then the military crackdown and then the beginning of the General Fan Shui government and then the the elections when the NLD wins the election Aung San Suu Kyi's kind of becomes this famous democratic icon but then gets put under house arrest and I think that was just extraordinary for for Western countries seeing that. And that was a point when sanctions began to be placed on the country. 
So does that mean that the international aid agencies pull out or does that mean that they try and find a way to work within a sanctioned environment? Because, of course, all of that turmoil probably means people need more help rather Mm. than less. Well, it impacted on the type of aid that was delivered and how it was delivered. So from about sort of 1990 onwards, major Western donors basically cut diplomatic and direct financial aid to the regime. But they maintained humanitarian aid to Myanmar. So what that meant was that they channeled humanitarian aid through UN agencies and international and national uh, non-government organizations. And the idea was that you were essentially bypassing the state. So there was this fear at this period that if aid was provided through the state or in partnership with the state, it would essentially be misappropriated by the regime and used to bolster this regime, which was widely condemned as illegitimate by the international community. So that was the first sort of main way of channeling aid during this period. The other way was the sort of non-official way. And this really took off from the 1990s onwards. And this was really a second mechanism which enabled the international community to access the border areas where the government restricted international humanitarian access and therefore donors began to channel assistance through organisations that were essentially working under the umbrella of the ethnic resistance groups in those areas. So under the radar. Under the radar. Very much unofficial, under the radar. It was called cross-border aid, although that's a bit of a misnomer because actually although these organisations have a management base on the Thai side of the border or outside of Myanmar, generally it's on the Thai side of the border, The people who deliver the services, whether it's health services, education or so on, are from the communities inside Myanmar and they live and work in those communities throughout the year. Tamus, the interaction between aid through the UN, aid through Mm. the NGOs, aid that was attempting to bypass the government but was still working within Mm. an established system Mm. versus this type of aid, which is completely under the radar. Is there an interaction between the two? In the time that I was living there and, and when Anna was there too, there, there was an incredible actually division between the people and the programs and organisations that were working, you know, for example, out, out of Yangon, working around the country and then others that had their bases maybe on the Thai side of the border. So, so there was actually quite a lot of division between those channels of... Division um, in what way? uh, Disagreements about the best way to do this? Yeah, yeah. Disagreements about strategy, really. And I think if you're characterising the kind of Thai side of the border, then they would say that that inside the country they're collaborating with the government or... Meanwhile, you know, from the inside, people would say, you know, this is a pragmatic step that we need to take in order to reach incredibly poor areas. The incredible poor areas are not just perhaps along the border, but uh, basically everywhere in the country... This cross-border funding, it's not an external force coming in and providing aid. It's incredibly tightly linked into these local communities. Explain that. In a way, it's one of those perfect sort of bottom-up models of development that people talk about in terms of ideals. The people who provide so-called cross-border aid are members of the communities in those areas. So I worked for a long time with health organisations. These are ethnic health organisations and community-based health organisations, which basically recruit members of local communities and they train these medics to provide primary health care services in their areas. And this means that you have 
over decades, the development of a sustainable community-level healthcare system in areas where there was no access to official healthcare services, government healthcare services. This is almost reflective of, of Mao Zedong's barefoot doctors, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And parallels have been drawn between the medics who work in these areas and the barefoot doctors because they literally walk on foot with backpacks full of medical supplies to reach communities that have been displaced by conflict or who are just very, very remote and have no other access at all to medical services. One other part of the story there after 88 was that a lot of the the activists and political leaders fled from the country because Mm. of fear for their lives to the Thai border. And then they became active in kind of starting new organisations that might be doing advocacy or might be doing health. So it was a mixture of ethnic organisations, but also these political leaders who were exiles from their country, yeah, and then working back into the country. So how were this aid and these organisations, how are they viewed by government, Myanmar government? Are they happy just to essentially allow it to go under the radar because it is serving a purpose or was it considered a real threat? So this is something that has changed a lot over time. When I first started working with these organisations in the southeastern borderlands, It was still at a time when there was no real collaboration between state and non-state systems. These non-state systems were essentially seen by state actors as being part of the ethnic resistance. They were operating in areas that were conflict areas and where state armed forces basically drew no distinction between military combatants and civilians. So they were um, targeted They as were well. absolutely targeted. Medics were killed, medics were arrested and detained, disappeared, we never saw them again. So they were very much operating in a situation where they feared for their lives. Now the situation has changed significantly, particularly since the ceasefires, the preliminary ceasefire of 2012 between the Karen National Union and the government was the sort of first major change. And then there was a nationwide ceasefire agreement, which is not a nationwide <laughs> yeah, ceasefire yeah. agreement. This is in 2015, yeah. but yeah, not yeah. everyone yeah. came to that party. Yeah, yeah, no, right. absolutely. It's a very partial agreement. But in any case, it has led to increased dialogue and increased cooperation between state and non-state service providers. And this is revolutionary. I guess if we go back to those early 2000s, even though you had this cross-border aid, you had also working through NGOs, it was amazing how little aid was going in to Myanmar. I mean, the numbers, if you compare it to Cambodia, Cambodia has got a quarter of Myanmar's population, and yet they got 500 million US dollars in 2005, mm. and Myanmar got 100 million. How much of that is because of sanctions and a desire to isolate? And how much of that was because government, Myanmar government, was saying you can't come in? A huge part of it is that during that time, Aung San Suu Kyi was saying don't give aid to this country. But she was under house arrest. Well, yeah, the times that she was able to voice her opinion about that, she said we don't want aid. And the strategy there was about isolating the military government. Her voice in the decision-making in Washington or London was enormous, but at the same time, it was incredibly difficult. And when I was living there, if you wanted to go and visit a field site, you had to apply for a government liaison officer who would come along with you every step of the way, whenever you went to every village you went to or whatever, they'd be right there with you. So it was highly controlled 
environment. Now, while all of this was happening, of course, other countries were making their own roads into Myanmar, in particular, of course, China. So tell us a little about while the West was focusing on a a policy of isolation, Anne, what was China doing? Well, China was very much establishing its presence in the region during this time. And, you know, interestingly, when you sort of look back at the time of Western isolationist policies towards Myanmar, many people talk about this period as basically a period that led to Western countries being on the back foot when it came to China's presence in the region. This isolationism basically left the door wide open for China to become the key investor in Myanmar and to basically establish its political presence and influence as well. And we see projects like the Mitsone Dam in the north of the country, which is a multi-billion dollar hydropower dam, which ultimately ended up being suspended, which is another part of the political story. But that, you know, huge, well, huge infrastructure investments. Well, there's a whole Myanmar, uh, China-Myanmar economic corridor, right. isn't there? I mean, yeah. it's, it's very much a part of the One Belt, One Road sure. initiative. But did China's presence also become a presence in aid? Where well, was China spending? All its money. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to when we talk about those aid numbers before. There's a very, you know, very specific ways in which aid money is defined, and China, much of the money that they would have spent on things in Myanmar is not included in those figures. A lot of money has gone for infrastructure with roads. The I, dams. I've, yeah, I've travelled in the northern Myanmar-China border. There's these incredible, you know, three-lane highways that have been built with largely Chinese money. So I think infrastructure has been the main focus. So what's the impact on the ground of Chinese spending? Is it money that helps local communities or China is well known for when it does these big projects, it tends to bring in its own workers and Mm. then it moves on. How are they received on the ground? I think like anywhere, it's mixed. And on one hand, many local communities might be very happy with the new three-lane road that they can use for trade or whatever. So there's some positive impacts for people. I think it's fair to say that there's quite a lot of negative perception of Chinese investment for lack of consultation or lack of understanding, especially around the Mitsong Dam, lack of understanding of just, this is like a natural heritage site for Kachin people and can't just come in and pay lots of people and build a dam on it. So it, tell us about that that project. When, mm, when was that cancelled? Yeah, so it was cancelled in 2011 and the plans had been going for a few years before that. So it was one of the biggest hydropower dams in Southeast Asia was going to be built on the top of the Irrawaddy River in Kachin State. And as I said, that's a natural heritage site of spiritual significance for Kachin people. And around the country, there was incredible opposition to that project and obviously against Chinese involvement in that project. I think that was one of the spin-offs of the transition in 2011 to the Thane Sein government when the project was suspended, which was an incredible surprise to everyone involved, given that the military government to that point had made no concessions to people who were kind of advocating for things like that to stop. It caused incredible diplomatic problems between Myanmar and China and still does. And I guess it has to be said that while there was resentment towards Chinese investment, this was a time when there was not a lot of money coming in for infrastructure in places like Myanmar, and they were desperately in need of roads and dams and power. Without any of that, they couldn't sort of take that next step in development. Yes, absolutely. But I think also there has been a change in recent years with a growth in investment by countries like China as the borderlands have opened up with these sort of tentative ceasefire agreements. 
it was a lot more difficult previously for investors to actually enter into those areas. So there has been a multiplication in recent years of these so-called mega development projects. Mm. And one thing that I just wanted to add to what Tamus was saying about the perceptions of these things, the perceptions of the dams, of the roads and so on, it's true that you know in, in many communities – There can be these mixed perceptions. There can be a perception that these things are beneficial. But amongst many ethnic minority community members, there is also a perception that development means mega development. It means things like roads and dams and so on and that they're not necessarily in the interests of local communities. Who want education, housing and healthcare. They want education, housing, healthcare and so on. Also, there have been many, many instances of fairly large-scale displacement because of these mega-development projects and of communities being even more disempowered than they were before, basically losing the main source of their livelihood, their land, but also being displaced and moved to new areas and losing their connections to their traditional lands. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Myanmar experts Dr Anne Decobert and Dr Tamus Wells. We're talking about the constantly changing and challenging nature of international aid in Myanmar. Now, we've been discussing how China came in while there was really a massive gap to be filled because the West was still very keen to isolate Myanmar. What happened in 2008 with Cyclone Nargis? Mm. Tamus, was that a game changer? I think the scale of it with 140,000 people dying, like, yeah, that definitely changed perceptions of the country. And I think it also went along with, in 2007, the so-called Saffron Revolution, where there was widespread protests around the country. And I think that was a moment when Western donor agencies and an embassy started to say, isolation's not working. And there was this protest all around the country and another crackdown by the government. And I think there was a realisation, a shift at that point to say, we need to do something different here and re-engage. And then Cyclone Nagas, the scale of it, in some ways allowed new actors to enter. And, a and lot how, of, how easy was that? What was government response? Because initially yeah. they were not that open to yeah. international aid. They were initially, you're right, they were very restrictive. But there was already a whole lot of actors there. And, you know, Immediately after the cyclone, there's, there's local organisations that are starting to do relief and they're getting support from international groups. And th- there have been a lot of active groups before that, but I think that was a point of recognition that you could support civil society in Myanmar and that aid could be used effectively in Myanmar. So I think that was a a big shift. Would you say that, Anne? Oh, absolutely. I think it really shifted the narrative around aid in Myanmar. As we were talking about earlier, there was sort of, until that time, this, this real division between international actors who were basically promoting isolationism and sanctions, and then those who thought engagement was a better way to work and to try to promote change in Myanmar. And Cyclone Nargis demonstrated essentially, as Tamus was saying, this possibility of working with the government and of delivering aid in effective ways without bolstering the regime. And so this basically shifted the balance towards the engagement camp. And it was around that time that calls to so-called normalise aid in Myanmar Mm. really gained prominence. And what does normalise mean in the context of aid? 
It basically means working with the government in very, very simple terms. So particularly when you're dealing with development aid, the predominant model is to work with the state. The state is the main actor, the main partner for international development. So as we were talking about earlier, historically, international aid to Myanmar from the 1990s onwards was really humanitarian aid, not development aid. And it was also going around the state instead of working with the state. So normalization meant essentially shifting towards working with the state and towards more of a development focus. Uh, You write about Myanmar going from being pariah to partner. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think... You know, we can't oversimplify too much. Myanmar was a pariah for a very long time and did shift to more of a partner. But I think there is still very much a wariness around whether the country, its political leaders can actually be trusted as real partners. Mm. Would you agree? Yeah, there's a sort of flow of history there. We're at the point of talking about Cyclone Nargis, and that was a point of the start of that let's engage again. That was then followed. We had the 2010 elections. Then we had the by-elections of 2012. Mm. Yeah. Then we had the rise of Aung San Suu Kyi yeah, from yeah, yeah. house arrest to you know leading her party. Yeah, absolutely. And through that time, most donor agencies just increasingly grew in confidence that they could work directly with government. And then obviously after 2015 and the election victory of Aung San Suu Kyi's party, that that went up to another level. That's when the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, all re-entered Myanmar. During that time, yeah. Was it an open floodgates at this point? Is that when aid just Yeah, well, I think we, we were tracking amounts? back through the figures and I think it was 2013 where there's an enormous spike in aid when the World Bank rushed to re-enter and Myanmar had outstanding debts to the World Bank from the 80s. But other countries jumped in and paid off those debts to allow them to scale up with some new projects. So there was a rush. So what happened in the borderlands? What happened to those cross-border, small local aid organisations that had relied on foreign help? Well, there was definitely a shift. As Tamas was just mentioning, there was this sort of rush or flood of aid into Myanmar, particularly after the by-elections of 2012. And this was when donor countries also moved their embassies back into Myanmar. And so aid really peaked at that period in 2013 at $6 billion, which was pretty much a 60-fold increase compared Mm, with 2005. So really, really significant. So on the one hand, you had this sort of influx of aid into sort of officially sanctioned mechanisms and channels. And donors who had long been supporting cross-border groups began to withdraw funding for cross-border aid, but also for the refugee camps in Thailand. So there was a shift in focus, really. Now, that's not to say that the cross-border groups and the refugee camps lost all their funding. They're still being funded by certain major donors. But there was definitely the withdrawal by some donors, and this did have major impacts on the ground. And this, again, goes back to the question of the interpretation Mm. of the political narrative Mm. Talk to me about the beauty and the beast narrative, because it just is such a clear way of tracing what's happened. The beauty and the beast narrative is, it's actually a, a sort of story that's been used to represent the situation in Myanmar. International actors sort of viewed Myanmar for a long time through this 
quite simplistic sort of story of the beauty, Aung San Suu Kyi, the beautiful woman who speaks the language of democracy and human rights, standing proud and tall against the the beast, the military regime. And so there was this very sort of Manichaean sort of black and white perception of what was actually a much more complex reality on the ground. And this shifted over time, this perception. But in the research that we've been doing um, recently, Tamis and I found that it did actually colour the way in which international donors channeled aid, mm. the, these sort of shifting perceptions. Well, absolutely. They, they trusted again that they could go through the centre. You're right. As Aung San Suu Kyi became more prominent in the government, yeah, yeah the donors regained trust in it and made huge commitments. The Beast and the Beauty was actually the title of a article in Vogue magazine. I think it might have been in about 2012. That was an actual way that people were describing the country um, in the kind of mainstream media. She was educated in the West. Yeah. She had this uh, magnificent British accent. Yeah. She spoke, you said, the language of democracy, but she also spoke in a way that the West completely could understand and mm. latch on to. Yeah. So the fact that it was in Vogue doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess there's two dimensions to her icon status and how that came about. I think domestically for Myanmar people, the fact that her father, An Sun, was the kind of independence hero of the nation and was assassinated just before independence. So she's got that kind of family link that people find extremely important. That's enormous for her status. In Western terms, her ability to speak to a Myanmar audience but at the same time speak to a Western audience with this sort of fantastic Oxford accent and sounds so convincing. Yeah, she had that ability to sort of communicate really effectively in both directions. So that obviously changed the game from an aid, an international aid point of view. But of course, her story is, has not been a linear one. Mm. And in many ways, she's gone from hero to pariah because of her country's treatment of the Rohingya. The UN describes it as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing, and she has been extraordinarily silent on it. What has been the result of that in the aid world? I think it's definitely had an impact. I think there was a a period sort of between about 2012 and when Aung San Suu Kyi essentially or her government came to Mm. power in 2016, when there was a lot of hope, there was this sense that that battle between the beauty and the beast Mm, was ending with this beautiful, happy ending and democracy and human rights would triumph and peace would eventuate in Myanmar. And I think donors and international NGOs really sort of believed in that happy ending, Um, which isn't to say that they didn't understand how complex the situation is and how difficult the challenges are in Myanmar. But there was a lot of hope in that situation. Now, that changed dramatically around 2017 with the upsurge of violence in Rakhine State. And Aung San Suu Kyi's silence and what has been denounced as collusion, essentially, with the military, has sort of led to a sense of disappointment, maybe, Mm. amongst donors and, and aid agencies, and a recalibration or the beginnings of a recalibration of how aid is channeled. So... As we were saying earlier, donors haven't given up on the ethnic groups and the systems in the borderlands, but there was this shift to working with government. And increasingly now there is more of a focus on working with those on both sides, if we want to be simplistic Mm. about it, and Mm. really not putting, as one person we spoke to put it, not putting all the eggs in the government basket. 
Because trust has been, if not shattered, trust has been severely shaken. Mm. Yes. I think it's important to clarify there, though, that she's got a domestic Myanmar audience and she's got an international audience. I mean, amongst the vast majority of her domestic audience, there's very little time for Muslim minorities. So she's not losing any votes by staying silent about this. Whereas if we look at the sort of Western audience direction... And the international aid comes from there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so she's the fall from grace or there's all kinds of quotes like that from commentators in the West. But that's not the story locally. I guess your point is, again, it's a a simplistic narrative Mm. that we're putting on top of Myanmar Mm. and allowing that to make judgments about where we might put international aid. Mm. That said, though, does the West ignore that, except that within her country it is Mm. popular, even if it's genocide, according to the UN? How else does the international aid community respond? That's a... Incredibly difficult question, and absolutely, there's been incredible abuse of human rights, and we can't do nothing about that. I guess there's this conundrum about around aid, about how much conditionality do you have with it. So, if Australia, for example, was to give aid to Myanmar, do we just say here's here's the money and you do whatever you want, and we're not going to say anything, or do we have extremely heavy restrictions on it? In which case, they may say. We'll see you later. We don't want your aid anymore. So there's a delicate balance that aid agencies play between wanting to have input, but at the same time not being in a situation where the government starts to reject. The aid that so getting. in some ways, does that mean that this, and as someone put it to you, not putting all the eggs in one basket is in fact the most appropriate response because you're not withdrawing the aid, but you're certainly providing yourself with other opportunities for getting it to where it needs to go? I think so. And I think that that's what many donors and INGOs That's a position that they would be adopting nowadays. There's this sort of idea that aid can also be used not only in conflict-sensitive ways, but in ways that contribute positively to peace and reconciliation. And there is more and more this sort of interlinking between the development programs of international donors and attempts to actually promote dialogue and reconciliation between those who have been on different sides of this decades-long civil society conflict, basically. And that brings me very nicely to something that you've both written in your recent research. You write, the decisions that international donors make concerning where and how to channel aid effectively amount to decisions about who are legitimate socio-political actors and agents of change. Is it that thorough an analysis, do you think, from the aid community? Or is it more a matter of working where they can, when they can, dealing with the cards that they've been dealt? Well, I think it's a bit of a combination. Um, We can't forget the fact that Myanmar was for a very, very long time a very closed-off country where there was a lack of information for international actors. And, you know, members or staff of donor agencies and INGOs were genuinely trying to help populations on the ground in a context where they lacked information, they lacked access, and they lacked an ability to sort of maybe play with all the players that they needed to play to at that time. And that has definitely shifted over time. There's more information now available. There's more access in some areas, although not all areas, because in some areas it's become more restrictive. But over time, there has been an ability for international actors to play more of this sort of mediator and peace-building kind of role. I guess one could almost argue almost benign work of international aid. I'm thinking more of the 
the decisions about legitimate socio-political mm. actors, that implies influencing power balances, that implies unintended consequences, mm. it implies changing the game on the ground. Mm. Do you think that's what international aid has done in Myanmar? I think it's something that was very obvious with the cross-border groups in particular. Um, for a long time, international donors, and we're talking major international donors, funded these cross-border groups as a way not only to channel aid to communities that otherwise had no access to you know, basic health and education services, but also because they considered the leaders of those cross-border groups to be legitimate socio-political actors and, in the words of one donor whom I spoke to at the time, agents of change. So there was an endorsement of these actors as legitimate. And then what we saw around the period sort of 2010 to 2015 was that there was a real change in international perceptions of those actors. And this is not, you know, all donors, but in the narratives and in the discourses of some donors, those legitimate agents of change came to be redefined as illegitimate actors. So there was a shift where, for example, the ethnic resistance groups were no longer called freedom fighters. They came to be called illegal insurgents. The cross-border groups that worked with the ethnic resistance groups came to be redefined from being seen as humanitarian workers to many people condemned them and said they couldn't be humanitarian. They weren't humanitarian because they weren't politically neutral. And they were, the accusation went, that through their partnerships with these resistance groups, they were feeding into conflict dynamics. So there was very much a sort of change from these actors being good guys to yeah, yeah, essentially to of, being bad guys. Part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, we're talking about aid, which is fundamentally there to help people. So while all of this good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy is going on, what is happening to the people? We could probably tell loads of stories of grassroots projects where there's been really profound changes and, you know, water and sanitation program has built a well and the children aren't getting diarrhea anywhere near as much as they used to. So, so I think there'd be hundreds of those kind of stories that we could tell. And it's part of that bigger picture of how much is that contributing to the changes happening. So we looked earlier about those budgets that if you took all of the aid that goes to Myanmar, it's still only a fraction of the, of the size of government budgets or of foreign direct investment. So yes, aid in a small scale way probably has had fantastic local level effects. They may not be as much as the effects of other things. And at a bigger level, it's probably empowered certain political actors and disempowered others over time. There are definitely some fantastic stories. There are also some very practical and not so fantastic impacts of these shifting sort of definitions of good guys and bad guys. And you can see that very clearly in parts of the borderlands, which is still only accessible by these ethnic minority service providers. One group that I've worked with for a very long time lost major donor funding throughout this sort of 2012-2015 period, and this impacted very, very clearly on the ability of that group to buy basic medical supplies, and they ran out of medicine. And, you know, we're talking about systems for healthcare provision that have developed over decades where you have 
4,400 health workers serving a target population of three quarters of a million people. And they're running out of medicine and they still can't necessarily tap into the funding coming from central areas. Yeah, yeah. So it's a tangible example of, a, of who was seen to be a good actor become one that's part of the problem. And that's yeah, on the ground impact. So what's the future of aid in Myanmar? Do you think we've seen the pendulum seems to have come to the middle where no eggs go in a single mm-hmm. basket? Do you think that is the future? I think if we're talking about this beast in the beauty narrative, I think that's that's ended. And in that sense, I think donors now will be more cautious in the way that they approach the country and perhaps hedge their bets more. I think we can't get away from the bigger picture of Western aid globally being less influential. And, you know, we saw those figures before of of just how small a fraction of money flows aid is now. Compared uh, to foreign direct compared, investment. Yeah, whereas if we looked at the 90s in Cambodia, aid was just a huge part of the economy. So I think we're seeing a shift towards Western aid being less influential generally, which then raises these questions about conditionality and how, how much can I tell you what to do if you actually don't need this money? Whereas if aid makes up half of the economy, then you can kind of force governments to do whatever you want and donors have done that. Yeah, and the other factor is... There's a lot of uncertainty at the moment because Myanmar is facing an upcoming election in 2020. Aung San Suu Kyi is not as young as she once was. There's a lot of discussion and uncertainty around her succession and around Myanmar's future. And I think international actors, Western and non-Western, are facing this very uncertain political context, added to which the ceasefire discussions are stalling, if not going backwards. So there's a lot of political uncertainties. It is an absolutely extraordinary story, an extraordinary country, and I'm enormously grateful to both of you for being so generous with your thoughts. An enormous thank you to Tamus and Anne. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests have been Dr. Tamus Wells and Dr. Anne Decobert of the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Here to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Here to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 2nd of August 2019. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.